You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Hey, bipeds. All right, we're rolling in 2021, and it just keeps on coming. And uh, today, I've had uh, today's guest in mind for quite some time. You know, one of the great joys of podcasting, I think, is uh, when you meet your friends' friends. And I've had a number of people uh, tell me, you've got to meet Casey Tigret. And by kind of happenstance, we actually got to meet uh, a couple of months ago. But Casey's my guest on the show today. Uh, He's the theologian in residence at Parkview Christian Church. Uh, He's a pastor, obviously, a writer. Uh, Casey also... Uh, what's the correct term? Dabbles in spiritual direction. Uh, K- Casey's a spiritual director. What, what's really interesting, he's written a couple of great books. His most recent is a book called As I Recall. And it, it's a fascinating kind of weaving of neuroscience and theology and really spiritual formation. It's, it's a wonderful like triplex of ideas just on the basic idea of how do we make meaning out of our experiences how does memory affect us? How does God use our memory to, to disciple us? So, Casey, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much. I'm glad our friends introduced us. That's a good thing. Yeah, it is. And and for my loyal listeners, you know, you'll hear Casey, you, you might be hearing his voice and saying, that man must be in one of our, one of these high-tech podcast studios. And <laughs> and I asked Casey before we hit recall, because he's sitting in his garage in a car, I'm like, what make and model is your studio? So Casey's doing the old school uh, car podcasting technique. Yeah, when you have people working at home and a dog and, you know, the garage becomes the, the cloister, man, it becomes the cell. So, and the car is the most audio-friendly place. So It is, yeah. Built-in acoustics and everything. Casey, I want to get right into your book, as I recall. The, the problem we have with some of our guests is there's too much good stuff to cover. And, and you're one of those because you have written on, on two themes that we could spend hours on. One is the story we tell ourselves and how we make meaning. And then the other one is you wrote a book on curiosity, which in our world is really the most powerful tool to overcome anxiety. So I think we're going to run out of time. But I would like to start with your most recent book, as I recall, and maybe you might just be willing to talk us through the journey of when we have an experience, uh, what happens in our brain to that experience and how does, it, how does it operate? And then I'd love to dig into where God intercedes that. So if you could just share, okay, how do, what happens with our experiences? What do you know to be true about it? It's, it's a beautiful thing. And, and a lot of this book stems out of work that I've done in spiritual direction, as you mentioned, and, and helping people who have questions about things that they carry with them. And a lot of times they don't know how they got there. So whether that's working with an image of God, working with a, a sense of anxiety or a sense of lack or something that they carry around with them that's operational, like it changes their to-do list. And they don't know how it got there. And so it forced me to examine how do we how do we get to be the people we are? And especially because we're the way our, our neurobiology is designed, our body actually sustains these things. So as nerdy as that sounds, I mean, you take it very simply. I, I like the image of gathering shells as a way of talking about this. Uh, my family loves walking along the beach. Um uh, picking up shells and things like that. And the wonderful part about that is you get to examine them. And some of them are crusty and nasty on the top. But when you flip them over, they have that beautiful iridescence on the bottom. Um, Some of them are beautiful just straight up. So we kind of spend our life walking around picking up shells. So we pick up experiences through our senses, our taste, sight, smell, sound, and touch. And we take those in and our, our body, our brain and our body together, as we take those things in, begin to archive them and we hold on to them. Some of them, sometimes I can pull out a smell, I can smell something and it takes me back to being a kid again. How is that possible? It's because your brain actually has this spot, this smell memory center, and smell is the strongest. So some people say you never forget a smell. Once you've smelled something one time, you have it forever, which... (laughs) 
which is great if it's a good smell. Um, if it's something nasty, hey, well, good luck with that. You're going to have it the rest of your life. And so those experiences, they lodge in our brains, and our brains actually change shape, um, something called neuroplasticity. It changes shape in order to hold on to those those sensations, those experiences. And then they become memories, which mean they be, they basically become scenes and stories that, from our past that we can access. So we have pathways to go back and grab that smell or that sound. You know, for people who have had bad experiences with dogs, they can go back and actually grab the sound of the dog growling and barking and the pain if they got bit. They can grow, They can go back and grab that. And then they also they become stories that we live by. And so, with the idea of the dog, if you if you got bit by a dog, you basically create this story that all dogs should be avoided. All dogs are evil, and you carry that story with you. And that story shapes your to do list. It shapes what you where you go, how you operate, and then uh, that turns into a script. And that script is basically what we live by. It's the stage directions for how we approach all of our lives. And there are ways in which that can be healthy. There are ways in which those things can actually lead to wisdom. Um, I tell a story in the book about going to my in-laws, my wife's grandparents' house, and they're all shorter people, and I'm a taller person, and they built their house for them. And so I remember trying to go down the stairs, and I whacked my head so hard, like cartoon stars hard, you know, that, that kind of sense. And... I realized the next time I went down the stairs, okay, I remember what that felt like. I should probably duck a little further next time. And so that kind of wisdom, that repeated being able to come back around again is a huge part of that. So there's a healthy way, but there's also, if we get a story in there, and I'm sure your listeners know this, you get a story in there that's unhealthy and dysfunctional, that's untrue, uh, that's not it's not affirming of life in general. It's not affirming of, of the God that Jesus knew. It's very hard to dislodge it because it's literally, our brains are literally shaped around holding on to that particular story. So that's what, that's what fascinated me about this because spiritual formation is always about how do we form ourselves around a particular story of who God is. And I've seen enough people formed around really dark stories to say, we've got to get to the root of where that story comes from before we can start helping people be formed into something different. Yeah, so I had this weird experience yesterday. It's the most keenly I've been aware of this. I was listening to a podcast in my car. I was commuting um, to my son's soccer game from a, a work appointment. And uh, I get to the soccer game, pause the podcast, go watch the game. I get back in the car and I hadn't been paying attention to the last few minutes. I wanted to go back in the podcast a little bit to kind of re-engage it. And as I was jogging back a few minutes, I would listen to the audio and my brain pictured where I was on the interstate. Like, like I jogged the podcast back, say, four minutes, and I actually saw myself at the traffic light on the off-ramp. And then I was like, oh, no, I've already listened to that. And I jogged forward a couple of minutes, then I saw myself driving by a 7-Eleven. How would you make meaning of whatever that was? There's, there is a connection that we make between... It's a way that our brain tries to triangulate experiences. So something that you hear while you're seeing something. That's why it's such an interesting thing to listen to music. Um, I remember I had, a, I had a really severe car accident when I was in high school, when I was a senior in high school. And I can remember all of the pieces of it. So the screeching of tires, those of you who've had an accident, accident I, I hope this isn't a trigger. But you can hear the screeching of tires. You can hear... Uh, the sound of your vehicle being struck, and I can feel I actually turned to 180 and ended up across the middle line of the street. But more than that, I also remember very clearly, even as crazy as that was, that the song that was playing on the on my stereo at the time was Dire Straits, The Sultans of Swing. And so now every time that I hear that song, there is this, I get this sense of like, oh, this dropping in the pit of my stomach. And so there is a triangulation that happens where we're connecting our whole life together. Not It isn't just a podcast you heard, but it's a podcast you heard in a place where you were. It could even go as far as to if you didn't feel well at the time, if you, you, know, if you knew that you something didn't say you'd had a burrito and the burrito was fighting back. And at the same time, that had happened as well. All of those things fastened together in order to 
to cement that memory. So the visual piece, the auditory piece, the physical piece, all of them come together and we make meaning from it because it, it reminds us that we aren't um, that we aren't divided, that God has created us as beings whose brains and bodies and all the sensibilities and sensations that go along with being human, all of them are infused together. So a memory isn't just something that we hold in our brain. It's something that we actually carry in our body. And and good research on trauma talks about that a lot. Like this is a your body is remembering the not only the idea of it or the concept of what happened, but you're also remembering what it felt like and where you were spatially, where you were in the, that particular journey in your life, how you felt at the time, um, even down to who you were with and what those relationship dynamics were. It's a very complicated thing that can happen when our brain starts to triangulate things together and form these incredible stories that we can then go back and access. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing up the car accident. Uh, I, I was in a life and death car accident when I was 16. My sister was driving. I was a passenger. And um, only uh, somewhat unrelated to that, I, as my listeners know, I was a trauma chaplain pretty young. I was 24, 25 only this year have I started to figure out, I wonder if I'm actually carrying secondhand trauma from being a chaplain, mm. like from all the things, because I have very vivid memories of what I saw, the condition of people's bodies. It's like it just happened. Uh, you know, I'm not asking you, Casey, you know, neither of us are trauma specialists, but I'd be interested with your studies. How would somebody know with these embodied memories when it's time to maybe get some trauma therapy because of what's coming up versus, oh, that's just an embodied memory. Like I'm on that journey right now. It's like the things that I remember as a chaplain, is that just my memories or am I actually being triggered where I probably should get some help? Mm. That's a good question. And typically that's what a podcast guest says when they don't know what to say. Next. <laughs> that's right. So that's yeah. a good question. But well, and this is... This is the right show for us to both admit, oh, we don't know the answer to this. There's no, no pressure to be an expert. Yeah, that was always the challenge with this book and even talking about it is I, I am at best an armchair neuroscientist and there are way more people quoted and cited who are, who are good at it. But I, I think for me, if someone came to me and asked that question, I think what I want to get to the heart of is how is that playing? How do you see that memory playing out? How do you see that that trauma or that embodied idea? Uh, how is that affecting the way that you live? How is that hindering your growth in relationships or your growth in the work that you do? Or do you find that it's that it's presenting a limiting factor when it comes to the development of your soul, the way you understand spiritual transformation. Is there a, a fear? Is there a fear of change? Uh, I, I feel like one of the critical pieces of spiritual transformation is being able to understand how change actually works. And that the first step of change is always some kind of little funeral. Um, there's, there's something small, medium or large that always dies when change happens. And trauma like that, that's embodied, that's a memory turned, you know, a full human experience, it tends to push us away from any sort of pain. But And in, in doing that, it pushes us away from change. And so being able to grow means being able to move from one place to another and being able to occupy different spaces or to see things that we once believed shift. And I, I think there's a protectivism that comes with some of these embodied traumas or these embodied hurts or these memories, that we, even even not traumatic ones, but even good ones. Um, it's, it's why when I am helping people in the process of faith deconstruction and reconstruction, which is obviously a bigger discussion, but one of the things that I find is most critical for them is they have already moved on as far as what they believe. They've already decided, like, I don't hold that belief that I used to hold. But what they're, what they're trying to manage is, I don't want to lose the tribe of people that believe that. Because they're my closest friends. They're the people who have helped me get to this point, And it feels like I would be betraying them. 
And so I can't tell them that that's not going to happen in some way or another, but there's a protectivism that comes from that. Like in my body and in my brain, I've learned the community is valuable and hopeful. And the thought of losing any of that is a fear that makes me lean away from change. So I would ask, you know, someone who said, should I do more? Should I get some some help about this, some trauma-informed therapy about this? Just how is this, a, how is this impacting your ability to face fears of change? Um, how is it affecting your ability to form relationships, to do the work that you do? Um, or maybe it's, we need to get to the bottom of that. Is it? You know, maybe we're asking the wrong question first. Is it affecting you in ways beyond just, I know it's there? Yeah, I, I think that's actually a really helpful way to kind of measure it, the way you just laid it out for us. If we were to flip onto the other side of the equation, rather than us being the one with the memory and the meaning, and I, I love how you talk about when it ends up as a script that we live by, rather than us being the one with that, could we flip it to where we are the faith leader and the people coming to us are bringing that? You you talk very poignantly about the meaning we make out of our religious upbringing as you just said in passing, the whole deconstruction journey that has been going on since the beginning of faith, but seems to now be really more in the public eye. I'll just say, Casey, as a faith leader, one of the things that grieves me the deepest is I call it same species syndrome. If if a previous pastor or church hurt you, um, first of all, you don't tend to look at what you did to cause damage you tend to look at what the leader did and then you bring that to the next church. So like the the amount of people that come into a church very suspicious of the leaders because of the meaning they've made. And I don't know how well we do with it at our church. I just, we name it, we talk it through, but I would love to hear from you. Um, how do you help people dislodge the meaning they've made from their experience? Well, I think you've, the the one the one key first move is something that you just noted which is just being honest about it i think one of the places where we as church leaders really struggle is being able to tell the truth not in the sense of as opposed to a lie but being able to tell the truth when it's it's not prompted or not asked for to tell the truth that about about the same species idea that yes that you know people will come to us and will not give us the benefit of the doubt and the reason why is because there are so many pockets of of christian faith evangelical and otherwise where there's a great deal of hurt going on and we can dive into where that's coming from where you know narcissism and church leadership is is such a giant so much bigger of a challenge that's why i'm grateful for for writers like Chuck DeGroat, who are actually talking about this honestly and saying, this is this is our, a driving thing. We, for whatever reason, we as people like to be led by narcissists. <laughs> we don't, it, it just, it looks like good leadership when in fact it's, it's really something deeply unhealthy. And that's what leads to some of the things that you're talking about, where someone comes to your church deeply distrustful. Maybe it's because of uh, a, a pastor or a leader who didn't, who didn't do what they wanted them to do. I've had that situation happen where, you know, someone has said, well, I came from this church and I asked them to do A, B, and C, and they didn't do it, so I left. And I'm sitting across the table going, well, that's that's really an unfair expectation yeah. to have on another human being. But ultimately, I think it's the honesty of, yeah, this you may be here and you may, so for you, as you mentioned, if if, if you're talking this through, that's that's an incredible big first step. The other thing would be to know that I think we need a more robust pneumatology here, um, a more robust view of what the Holy Spirit is capable of. Um, we, we can try really hard to change a person's story, but I think ultimately it's the Spirit that, that leans in and changes a story. Our active participation is to give embodiment to a different one. 
And the hard part of that is, you know, confirmation bias. Uh, the least mistake, which we will make as leaders, will just confirm what a person already believes. You know, if they carry a story that church leaders can't be trusted, there will be ways that that comes across. But embodied, embodied practice of a different kind of story over time, I think this is very much a marathon conversation. And um, there's a good chance that folks will not stick that out. And ultimately, I've, I've found people get to the point where that is such a hindrance to their growth and healing that they begin to ask some of those difficult questions. Uh, and sometimes it takes walking away from the faith entirely or from a faith entirely for them to get to the heart of, ah, gosh, I actually was carrying a really dark story about, about this past experience. And then being able to rectify that and wrestle with it because our, our memories aren't, we don't, we can't delete them. Trauma allows for our brain to have a little secret trap door sometimes that just opens up and, and some memories just disappear. But ultimately the ones that stick, we don't have a delete button for them. We can rewrite the file. We can overwrite it with, you know, some new pieces and some new insights. I find that half of my memories now that I'm getting older um, I see them very differently. Um, things that I saw my parents do, I see it very differently now that I'm a parent. Oh my gosh. Mm, yeah. Like that was a renovating move. <laughs> like, oh, that's why you did that. Oh, wow. That really affected me deeply. But now I, now that I see it from here, I'm going to have to wrestle with this a little bit. And what you, what was actually going on in my childhood now that I am doing the same from, you know, now that I'm stewarding the life of my child. Gosh, you know, sometimes they just get rewritten over time. So I don't, I guess to say, I don't know that there's a linear way of doing that. But as church leaders, our, our best posture is to embody something different. And, and some of that is dealing with our own trauma um, so that we don't transfer it onto our people. It, it's a fascinating um, truth. How, how unreliable how do I word this, Casey? How unreliably dependable our memories are in relation to the truth. Um, you know, I think probably most famously is Brian Williams, right? And and Malcolm Gladwell's work trying to show that Brian Williams, the news reporter, in fact, is not necessarily a liar as he, as he retold the helicopter story and kept, as he kept telling it and telling it and telling it, putting himself closer and closer to the action than he really was. I, I still struggle to believe that. I, I know my own temptation to exaggerate as a storyteller uh, and a temptation that I have fallen to many times. It's hard for me to believe that he did not consciously know he was shifting the narrative to, you know, make himself more of the hero. What's your take on that? I agree. Uh, I think there is a, there is a, it's an odd tension because there is a there's a dynamic of our memories that is it's all based on our senses. So what we're taking in is perception. So even even from the get-go, the way we see, smell, taste, touch and hear is limited and it's it's subjective to all sorts of different things. And so I think one of the hindrances and one of the challenges with our memories is that we we are not, even even in our faith commitments, we are not purely living by objective truth. Um, it isn't as if we're all, you know, reading from a textbook, applying, rinse and repeat. It's that there are objective truths that we hold, but we also have this body of experiential truth. Things that we've been through, tasted, touched, saw, smell and heard that are as true to us as anything else because it's it's our perception. And I know this sounds really relativistic and kind of subjective, and I know I just use relativistic and subjective back-to-back, -back, so those are, you know, we're, I'm, I'm running low on the economy of words here, so I'm, I'm going to try not to throw... You're in a car. You're in a car. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. That's true. It's the, it's the fumes. It's the um, vehicle, yeah. Yes, it is. So... Being able to be honest about the fact that our memories are limited, but our memories are, are what they are. 
Um, so trying to trying to see them honestly, a, a good a good spiritual director has one one particular task underneath many, which is how do we perceive the way that we how do we look at our perceptions of what God has been up to, and that same thing is true when we start talking about memories. If I ask someone a story, tell me about the first time that you ever heard someone talk about God. They're not only pulling up the concept. So whether they heard that from somebody who presented God as this overbearing, you know, boot in the sky, or if they heard someone talking about God as this kind, gentlemanly old grandfather who lives down the street from them, they're not just pulling that. What they're also pulling is the experience of that particular person. So if that person was a kind and radiant person in their story, they're pulling from that. That's the experiential truth of the moment. They're pulling from their place in life. They're pulling from, you know, so much of my work as a, as a spiritual director, and oh, it, it's heartbreaking, is how quickly we conflate earthly father with heavenly father. And that story gets so muddy when the one overcomes the other, when our memories of our father here who, you know, a lot of times when I'm doing that work, it's it's a father who is not faithful to the task of, of being a healthy example, you know, dealing with their own trauma and passing it on. And so there's this memory there of this is what dads do. And so they read Matthew and the Lord's Prayer and say, our father, and they go, oh, I know how this turns out. Yeah, I've been there. And so there's that objective piece, God is Father, that concept, that image that we use, and all images or metaphors are limited, but that that image or metaphor of God as Father then suddenly turns onto this experiential truth of, and this is what fathers do. And so if that's who, if and sometimes the experiential truth just over, just runs roughshod over whatever else there might be packed in and baked into when Jesus says our Father that gets completely overwritten. And so the truth and the the sort of wonkiness of our memories, some of it is because um, we only remember what we can see. And some of it is because we haven't, I don't know that we as, maybe it's on church leaders. I don't know actually who, I don't want to place any fault, but the idea comes to mind that we haven't fully discussed how, how deeply experiential truth is part and an important part of the way that we understand our life and our faith. Um, organizations get this. Like organizational leadership, they understand how deep experiential truth really goes. Like mission statements are great. Strategies are great. But culture is what you experience when you work with a team. And culture will eat that strategy for breakfast every single day. I think that's Peter Drucker that says that. I don't want to yeah. do plagiarism. But I think that's true of us too. Like what we experience will override what we learn cognitively unless there's a, a good repetition, a good reinforcement of that. I don't even know if I answered your question. I answered somebody's question, but I, I don't know if I answered your <laughs> question, Steve. Uh, that was great. It, it's, I think one of the things that has haunted me the most as a pastor and I guess as like the primary communicator of the Bible in our church is people's experience of it that I simply can't control. Um, I'm a Gen Xer and we all decided that we were going to solve legalism by preaching grace. We read Max Licato and we're off to the races, you know, and I, you know, I, I, I was raised when people like Max were really writing beautifully against the kind of stiff legalistic uh, church and toward the expansive love of God so, you know, 16 years ago, I, I take this role at this church and I start preaching the expansive love of God. And um, I don't know, it was just a few years in, Casey, where I was horrified to realize that journey of shedding legalism and the angry God that's out to get you and entering into the expansive love of God, that journey has so much more to do with human development than the preacher. Like, what if in my church where I'm preaching grace, people are saying, oh, that's the church that preached the angry God. But later on, I learned about grace. And and for me, where I had to notice that was in my own kids. One of my children particularly was very legalistic as a kid. You know, we, for example, I don't want to out him. He's an adult now, but but we never, as parents, talked about smoking, people who smoke. 
we don't talk about it. We don't smoke, but we don't say, oh, smokers are terrible. But boy, did he think they were some of the worst people. Like he had these very rigid sets of right and wrong. And I think therefore he listened to talk about God through rigid glasses, through a rigid lens, and then spat out a belief in a rigid, angry God. That really freaks me out as a leader because then it gets painted onto me, not by my son, but by everybody. Like, oh yeah, discovery people might say, that's that legalistic church. But really they're not recognizing it's the meaning they made. Uh, I wonder if maybe you can solve that for me so I can rest. Oh, I wish I could. I wish I could. I do too. I thought you promised you would before we hit record. I, I don't remember. Yeah. So my memory's not, it's, it's not reliable right now. It's the, it, you know, I sent that email, but it's in the fine print. Ah, uh, okay. Asterisk, yeah. You know, all the subjects, term subject to Condition, change. terms and conditions, yeah. Yes. I do think, I do think that is one of the great challenges of, especially of, the way we practice our faith in our gatherings, where there is so much that's centered around a, a verbal upfront proclamation. Because the weight of, we feel the weight of proclamation in, in preaching, of, of saying something and having it have an impact on people. And it does. And yet there is this whole communal life that wraps around that that can either reinforce or tear apart what's actually being said. And I, I do think it's the development and it's, it's being a part of a community where, you know, early stage faith really requires us to have some fairly rigid boundaries and, and fairly strong structures. Um, the problem comes when we somehow convey the message that there's no permission to move beyond that. And so working with people in early stage faith, it's developing practices that later on will seem pretty legalistic. But how do we nurture people early and then their anxiety? And, it, and that's what it comes back to, too. It comes back to the anxiety of, oh, you know, people come to me like, I've, I've been reading the Bible lately and I just don't feel like I'm connecting with it. And when I look at them and go, yeah. That makes sense. It's as if the, it's as if they've been holding on to this grand failure, and then you give them a permission that oh no, no that's actually part of it. Yeah, it's like doing therapy with married couples, and they're like, you know, we've been married for three years, and it's just not like it was at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I hope it's not. Yeah, because it means that you're growing. It means that there's transformation going on. Just like any human relationship, our, our connectivity with God is, is definitely going to change. And there, there are going to be those things that are picked up that are not attempted to be communicated. We, we will preach as much grace as we can, and then it won't be considered grace um, because there is that level of, I don't experience that as grace. And so the objective and the experiential truth are constantly constantly running into each other, where I think that helpful work that gets done is in how a group of people embodies that beyond just the person who's paid to embody it. How does a group of people embody that? And in the sense of how do they give permission for someone to walk in and go, my story of who God is, is this rigid, legalistic, terrifying being in the sky. And someone just to look at them and go, yeah, I know. I know. That's not mine. Here's mine. And let's talk about how we came to those. And just that relational aspect is so incredibly critical. And it can't be forced, but it does, it can be cultivated. I, there's just, I have so many thoughts around that, around the ways that it could be done. And I think there's acres and acres of real estate to be covered and how you can create those communities that really support and embody what's being said. Uh, but ultimately, you're right. It, it's not something that we control. Um, it's something that we, we speak to the voice of God that is true in us from both the objective things that we've learned and the experiential wisdom that we've gained. And then we allow, we allow that to become what it's going to become in people's lives. Yeah, Casey, the, the majority of my listeners are some kind of a 
faith leader, by which I mean they have faith and their faith informs their leadership wherever they're leading. And I think for most of them that I hear from, they struggle with the story they tell themselves about themselves. Mm-hmm. That that if they listen to what God says, it's good news. If they listen to what they say about themselves, particularly when they fall short of their own standards, uh, if they listen to what they tell themselves as bad news, why is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves so often bad news? That's a great question. I, I, th- I think it, there are multiple entry points for me. And so I'll start with the one that I feel like might be the most controversial. And I only say that because I think it is. Somebody, you may go, oh, that's not really that big a deal. But I do think the, the, the way that evangelical churches especially have bought into the concept of original sin has made it so that anything that strikes us as good, anything that strikes us as good about ourselves seems to be some sort of aberration, some sort of glitch in the matrix. And I think that makes it really hard. And it it almost makes it feel more righteous and holy to believe the bad stories about ourselves because our theology is so rooted in that whole idea of, you know, depending on your tradition, either totally depraved or there's this sin nature that's within all of us. And yet that's not the, that's not the witness that all of historic Christianity gives. I mean, the Franciscan tradition rightly points us back to say there's this original blessing that God in, in, in the Hebrew says that uh, all of creation is tov meod, is very good, exceedingly beautiful and pleasing, and never goes back on that. What happens with sin entering the story is that that is augmented. And so sin becomes the exception, not the rule. And that's why it's, it's a challenge. So I think, especially as faith leaders, as we teach, if we teach that story, and if that becomes our primary way of talking about rescue and salvation and redemption and transformation, it's very hard for us to believe, actually, there's, there is some good stuff. There is, there is a way, a reason for me to believe the good stories about who I am and what I'm up to rather than trying to have this humility and go, oh, well, it's not me. It's just God. Well, of course it is. Nobody's, <laughs> nobody's mistaken about that. We, we know that we're not awesome. But at the same time, there's this, uh, also this non-dual idea that, but we are, we are gifted and good at some things. There are things that the Spirit has equipped us to do. And so being able to hold in tension the fact that I am just, I am capable of some really dark stuff and yet I am also someone with whom God has entrusted the work of his kingdom. Or Dallas Willard puts it this way, the work that God has left for us to do in the world. I love that way of putting it because it says that it's, it's something that's been, that's been provided, that's been opened, the door's been opened to that. So I think that's one reason. I, th- I think the other reason is it, the dark stories, the bad stories always seem to be louder. Um, in my early ministry, I, I, I was a senior pastor at a small church for about five years, a church of about 50. When I left, they were a church of 25. So we were doing a different church growth thing. All yeah. Did, out, did out, Outreach Magazine ever reach out to you about that story? Uh, a couple of times. I just mm-hmm. felt like, you know, I was too humble to be the mm-hmm. cover person. That's so good. I, yeah. Yeah. I let go of that. But there was a, there was a man in our congregation who was a, a strong principled guy, a big farmer and just you know, was very dedicated to his family. And every Monday morning he would come to my office and spend about an hour just tearing into me about how bad the weekend was. And, uh, I, I have grown in my ability to do confrontation and, and to have boundaries, but at the time I didn't. And so I, I would just sit there and listen. And over time, like, that residual effect of that went from, okay, well, I just need to, I just need to withstand the Monday meeting to, gosh, this is, it it becomes, it becomes, I'm fated to have this same thing happen. And, and I think it actually began to affect what I did, but it did those all the while there were people in other places saying, oh no, this is good. What's going on. We really feel like God is in this, but I couldn't hear that uh, because this was just way too loud. So I think that's another reason why it always feels louder. Um, 
And then there's ex- the expectations of what faith leadership should look like, what should and shouldn't be happening. And as with all expectations, some of them are fair, and then some of them are built on faulty premises that we've just presuppositions and assumptions we've brought with us that no one else has and that putting on ourselves is just unfair. When I, uh, when I do my workshops for organizations or oftentimes it would be a group of leaders that are in some kind of network, I, I try to get them to stand up and say something true about themselves that's a gift to the world. And they just won't do it. Like, the, that some of the strongest resistance I face when I'm teaching my materials, and then I model it for them. I say, well, here's, here's, here's what I do. And, and, and they're very uncomfortable. They think it's, uh, I, I'm trying to make the case that it's more humble to simply stand there and say, yeah, I do this thing well in a unique way that God uses. That's more humble than saying, oh, I could be better. That's, there's kind of a weird arrogance in this, False humility. I, I think you're onto something there. And I think, I think I've been trying to figure it out, Casey. I think it's like a vulnerability. It, it, that, you, you know, you shaped it back to the, the fall and original sin theology, like we're all polluted. There's also something very vulnerable about simply standing and saying, here is what I do that's a gift. Mm-hmm. But if, boy, it's freeing to do, I think. And we, it is, I think it is, and I think we need to repent of our own self-destruction because there are enough challenges in faith leadership that we don't need to add internal ones to ourselves. And the vulnerability piece is huge, but also, you know, bringing it back around to memories, there may be a story that we carry in us where we we dared to step out and say, I feel like I'm really good at this. And then someone we trusted, a mentor or a teacher or a congregation member said, oh gosh, that seems kind of prideful, don't you think? Right, right. And once, and that story just got, just got locked in. And now it's just the assumption that if I, if I say this, and maybe it is about choosing the community in which you say that, you know, people who you know will receive it well and will understand where you're coming from. But that story gets locked in and we say to ourselves, well, I'm certainly not going to do that. But I am affirmed by those same people when I talk about, well, you know, uh, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. And gosh, the New Testament just seems to say that we're a lot more than that. Yeah. I I just feel like there's, you know, Jesus saying you're going to do way more. (laughs) You're going to do way more things than I've done while I'm here. And if I'm the disciples, I hear him say that and I go, wait a minute. Okay, so healing blind people. um, There's that guy that you made him walk. So we're going to do more than that. So clearly you're giving us more credit than we deserve, right? And I think enough of those affirmations of our false humility are out there that it's easy to just assume that as the story and operate from that default. And when we do do something good, we we learn how to appropriately give that to someone else. And sometimes that can be a really healthy, and that's the that's the tension of it. Sometimes that is a healthy thing. But if it becomes the predominant stance, gosh, I just don't know how long we can live and lead from that particular story. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually just going to read, I just brought up here on my screen, First uh, John 3, 19 and 20. I'm just going to read it for our listeners. It's out of the message version. I, I think Eugene Peterson captured something magical here when he translated it this way. Here's what it says. This is the only way we will know we're living truly and living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there's something to it. But God is greater than our worried hearts, and He knows more about us than we do ourselves.
So, Casey, this has been just wonderful and rich and and as I expected, um, we, there's a lot we could continue to unpack. However, uh, what what the times now require is the gauntlet of anxiety questions. And um, my concern is simply, since you are recording from your vehicle, that it has central locking, that uh, you might be trying to tunnel out uh, during the gauntlet. But nevertheless, I'm going to uh, continue. And uh, let's just start by, you know, you have a disposition of reflection and, and calm. Um, what makes you anxious? What makes me anxious is a, a lot of times the unknown and and not not being able to perceive what the next step is. I'm fine to live into it, but sometimes that unknown piece causes a great deal of unsteadiness within me. And uh, it's I feel like it's that tension we all live in between. Balancing, uh, I, I deeply, deeply resonate with the Celtic image of the Holy Spirit as the wild goose and that we're all chasing the wild goose in life. Uh, but we don't know where that goose is going. And so I, that's one, one of many things that, that, bring, that bring about some anxiety for me. Mm. Yeah, obviously this year has been a year of not knowing what to do. And I think that's a guaranteed way to check your anxiety. Give us a time recently when you didn't know what to do. And what was that like for you? Uh, there have been some changes uh, in our in our life and specifically some changes in my family, some mental health struggles in my family. And when you have when you have mental health crises, there is the medical component of it, and there's there's counseling, and there's therapy, and there's medication. But there's also this day to day lived kind of experience. And so, uh, doing the work of helping create non-anxious space for leaders and people through spiritual direction to listen to what God is up to, I was doing that on one side, but on the other side, managing how do we order this day and this house so that so that it best fits what my family is going through when this mental health journey has begun and this mental health crisis is going on. So anticipating what kind of day is today going to be? And who, who are we, who is going to come downstairs today? Um, and so that, that was a big, big challenge uh, throughout. And that started during the pandemic lockdown. So you, you had this sort of big umbrella under which we were managing some, some significant crisis. And, and uh, yeah, just not knowing you know, what day to day was going to be like and, and not, and then chiding myself cause I shouldn't be surprised, you know, like what, what did you expect? Uh, I've really taken on this mantra lately of just saying, of course, of course. Um, and it's really helped to defray the anxiety a little bit because, uh, it helps me keep from raising everything to like DEFCON three. Mm. And it says like, of course, this is, this is life. Of course. So how are we going to step into this today? And so sometimes that sometimes that's enough, and then sometimes it's like, nah, the of course is not cutting it today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to grab a life raft and hang on. Yeah. Oh man. I, you know, one of the great besetting challenges of any leader is we we do inherit the narrative of our family, uh, family of origin. So what what would be for you? Uh, one asset that your family of origin handed down to you that's really been helpful, and then what might be one liability that gets in the way? Yeah, I, I take very much after my dad, and one of the gifts my dad has is a real fearlessness to step into new things, which is odd. Now, having said that, you know the unknown is one of the things that gives me anxiety. Uh, I think as I get older, that's happened a lot. But my dad had this ability, and I learned this from him of just not being afraid to step into spaces where you were high on willingness and maybe a little low on expertise and finding your way. And I think much of my ministry and leadership has been that, seeing a space that where there was a need and going, I don't exactly know how we're going to handle this, um, but I'm going to step into it. And so I feel like that was an asset. I, I don't, I, when I was preaching on a regular basis, people would say, do you get nervous? And I would say I get, I get about two minutes right before, and then usually I feel like I'm right at home. And uh, I see that as part of a gift that I could give to the world. Um, 
as far as a detriment is concerned, I, I, our family did not do a whole lot of conflict and didn't really talk directly about issues and, and challenges and boundaries. And that was really hard from a family perspective. Um, my wife identifies as an Enneagram 8. I identify as a 4. And so on the books, that shouldn't really work. So as long as we're healthy, we're great. If we're not healthy, then we know we have to stay away from each other for a little while. But um, she she was the one who kind of pointed out and said, there are some places here where there's some you need to have some direct conversations. And I learned not only through family, but also through situations in ministry, how to have those healthy, you know, knowing that I didn't have to go from saying nothing to just full out flamethrower, you know, scorched earth approach and finding that middle ground of, I need to ask for some things that are important and healthy. And I also don't have to ask for everything and I don't have to denigrate their character. So I think that was a big we, I just didn't get that growing up and have had to develop it on the fly since then. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Casey, final question is, when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? When I know that I am being the best I can be for my family and when I am serving out of that deep, significant place that God has put in me, where the best of what I've been made to do is on display, there's a feeling of there's a feeling of being loved in that. Um, when when I know that my family, I'm I'm presenting to them what they need, and they're also feeding back to me um, what they know that I need um, in order to in order to feel loved and appreciated and connected and um, encouraged. But that I'm also at the same time, that moment when those two things converge, and it doesn't always happen, and I don't, I don't think the world's unfair that it doesn't. But when those two things converge, serving out of that really deep place of giftedness and feeling that deep sense of connection, that mutual give and take that takes place in our family, when that happens, that is when I feel most loved and most alive. And uh, it's a thin place. Mm. Uh, it's a place where I feel like the boundary between the sacred and the, the normal, or if it ever existed, is definitely gone at that point. Hmm. Casey Tigert is the guest. His most recent book is, As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life. Casey's a pastor and author. He's also a spiritual director. You can connect with him. We'll have this in the show notes. You can connect with him at caseytigert.com. And Casey, thank you so much for coming on the Managing Leadership Anxiety podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Steve. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 